Hello and welcome to this GNNP podcast. Uh, my name's Alan Carson. I'm one of the associate editors of the GNNP, also a consultant neuropsychiatrist and reader in neuropsychiatry at the University of Edinburgh. And it's a great pleasure to speak to uh, Tom McMillan today. He's a professor of neuropsychology in Glasgow. Um, and to uh, subscribers to the GNNP, they'll know that uh, we've published quite a bit of his work over the years on outcomes of head injury in the general population. But the purpose of today's podcast is to talk about his most recent paper, Long-Term Health Outcomes After Exposure to Repeated Concussion in Elite-Level Rugby Union Players. Um, the subject of, I think, great public concern, really, and uh, worry about whether sports stars are um, at particular risk from concussion. It's been very newsworthy. Um, and it's really um, great to actually have some high-quality data Tom, perhaps I could maybe just start by getting you to uh, talk us through what your study actually was in terms of the methods and then what the results were, and we can then maybe think about putting that in a bit of context, if that's okay. Um, Well, this is a study on um, retired international rugby players, uh, players who had played for uh, the Scottish Rugby Union, and we uh, followed them up on average uh, 20 years after they had stopped playing. There were um, 52 retired international players and we had 29 um, controls that were similar in age uh, um, and in social deprivation. Um, And what we wanted to do was to look to see if there were any long-term health outcomes uh, in the rugby players that um, differed from the controls or that were associated with the number of concussions that they self-reported. And we looked at history of playing rugby, um, history of uh, brain injury, um, general health, mental health, life stress, concussion and and, um, symptoms and cognitive function. Uh, We found actually few differences between the groups. Um, There wasn't really any difference in terms of mental health or general health uh, or of chronic life stress. Uh, We did find um, a difference on one cognitive test. We gave a range of tests, but on a test of verbal learning, the rugby players performed more poorly than the uh, control group. Um, Of interest, though, the, the difference, although statistically significant, the rugby players still performed in the, the normal range, so it wasn't clinically significant. So what, what were your final conclusions in that case, Tom? So our conclusions were that despite the rugby players having on average 14 concussions per player, um, there were not clinically significant differences between the groups. Um, and the subtle differences on the cognitive test Uh, We were uncertain about the cause of that. Uh, And finally, that a prospective study, perhaps with a control group of athletes, um, is required. So in general, it sounds like a a fairly reassuring message for um, rugby players, Um, although I think you make the point that um, the modern game, the the hits, as they say, are are, are harder still. So... um, there, there, there may still be some some cause for concern, but there's, despite a, a fairly high number of concussions, there's not a huge amount coming out here that's um, giving cause for for alarm. 
Can I just drill down a little bit? Because for, for a lot of people who are not familiar with neuropsychological testing, um, it, it's, it's maybe not so clear-cut why you might get slight differences in results for, for if you like, non-brain pathology reasons. And can I, can I just get you to expand on what a few of these possibilities are? Well, you, when you're doing cognitive tests, essentially you, you're um, looking for an impairment. And people's um, cognitive function can be affected by many things. Some people automatically think that if, if someone doesn't do very well in a cognitive test, uh, there must be damage to their brain. Uh, but there are obviously, if you just pause to think, a number of reasons why somebody might not perform quite as well. There can be physical reasons, such as they haven't uh, slept very well, uh, they could not be feeling very well, they could be uh, suffering from pain. So the reasons of that kind would mean that people had greater difficulty concentrating, for example, and may not do as well in uh, a memory test. Um, there are other reasons that are a little bit more complicated, and um, they can be associated with um, people's perceptions of how they should perform. Uh, so there's quite a bit of evidence, really, in, in terms of people um, uh, performing on tests in a manner that they uh, believe that they should perform. So whether they should be performing very well or maybe not quite so well because they believe they have an illness um, and so on. So one has to clinically uh, try to take these things into account when you're interpreting cognitive test data. Because certainly when I was looking at this, um, when you first submitted it to the journal, and then uh, you sort of noticed that actually on a, that there was no such difference in terms of um, digit symbols um, substitution, which I'm, is sort of quite heavily loaded towards working memory as well. And I did wonder to what extent that that was maybe playing a, a subtle part in things. And I, I just wondered if as the tests were done, if you'd had a feel of whether these uh, players were worried about their memories. Well, I, the, the tests were carried out by the research workers. I think some of them... Um, uh, certainly were um, uh, worried about their memories and um, they're, they're worried about the potential long-term effects of um, their rugby playing uh, career um, but it's, it's difficult to um, post hoc kind of uh, interpret the, the, the data very clearly other than that there, the, uh, there was only eight or ten tests and only one of them was significantly different and um, the effect wasn't clinically worrying. And you're going to have a level of chance at that point anyway, aren't you? Yeah. And in terms, one of the things you, you, you alluded to um, that can contaminate the results of cognitive testing is pain. And certainly reading other cohort studies, not looking at outcomes from concussion, but just general outcomes in athletes, I've, I've certainly been very struck by the very high levels of pain and arthritis. Um, particularly amongst American footballers. Um, there's some, been some very good epidemiology on their, their general health outcomes. Um, and I, I was just wondering to what extent that was an issue in retired rugby players. I know it's not something you, you directly measured, but again, just on speaking to, to people, did you get any impact? And do you think if you were doing this again, it would have been important to measure pain? Um, I think um, uh, looking at pain is, is a valid thing to look at. Certainly a number of the players were on um, anti-inflammatory uh, medication. And, um, you know, so I think it would be something that would be, that would be valid to include in future study. 
And, and again, just in that regard, um, you know, just supposing somebody does get funding ever for this prospective study, and it's, it's very hard to do a prospective study that's maybe going to take 20 or 30 years before it comes out with the results you need, but uh, it shouldn't maybe stop people trying. Um, is, is there any sort of learning points, do you think, from this that you, you think is, are, are important to be looking at, or for people just when they're reading literature of this type in general to to give consideration? You know, is there any tips of wisdom you've picked up on the way? I, I think just in general, it is very important to keep um, an open mind about this. There's obviously the, um, the, there's been significant concern in the media and elsewhere about um, the potential impact of concussion in the long term. And I think it's important simply to keep an open mind and um, the belief that finding a, having a negative finding is uh, just as important as a, finding a, a, a positive um, effect or difference between groups. And in terms of reporting these things, do, do, do you think researchers have a responsibility in that regard? I suppose I'm thinking it, as, as a journal editor, it's often tempting uh, what one sees people trying to squeeze a positive finding, if, as it were, out of uh, a negative study on, on, on countless occasions. Um, and uh, I suppose I was wondering if there is a, a role for for researchers here in terms of um, how they report on studies? I mean, I, I think it's um, it's equally important. I think that um, there's always a, a concern about the, the kind of file drawer effect where people just don't get round to uh, um, publishing negative findings um, because they think it will be harder to do and, and, and um, uh, may not have uh, such impact. But it means that if you don't do that, you're introducing a, a bias into the literature so that if um, um, systematic reviews or meta-analyses are carried out, uh, um, they're not going to come up with the right, um, with the right answer if, if negative findings haven't been published. I suppose I was also thinking just up in terms of papers that do actually get published, because I was looking through the reference list, and most of the papers um, that you cite I was very familiar with, but there was one that had passed me by, and I hadn't noticed it. I'm not sure why, actually. It was on neurodegenerative causes of death amongst retired National Football League players. Um, and uh, th their conclusions are the neurodegenerative mortality of this cohort is three times higher than that for the general U.S. population and that for two of the major neurodegenerative subcategories, Alzheimer's disease and um, motor neuron disease, it's four times higher. And these studies are consistent with recent studies suggesting increased risk of neurodegenerative disease amongst football players. And I have to confess, on reading that, I almost fell over backwards because it was very different from my reading of the literature in general. But when I went to look at the tables... I found out that in this cohort of some 3,000-odd patients, there were actually 10 patients with neurodegenerative disorders full stop. And uh, that, that seemed to me to be a big statement on, on, the, on the basis of uh, 10 underlying neurological disorders. I suppose it's maybe being a bit unfair inviting you to comment in that way, but uh, if there should be more of a responsibility of uh, researchers to perhaps not... Uh, try to make stories in, in areas where it looks like there's really quite a lot of doubt. Well, I, I think that examples like that are, are, are important uh, issues to raise. Uh, you know, anyone who works clinically um, with people uh, who have had a head injury 
we realise that they uh, they come with a life history, and their life history is relevant, and um, it's relevant for the average man in the street. Uh, and, but it's also re- relevant for the sports player, particularly if it's an elite sports player who uh, um, has moved perhaps from being in a, in a position of being in the limelight to retirement where they're no longer in the limelight and their their main career skill um, is something they may no longer be able to use. So, you know, it's important, I think, to understand the epidemiology of conditions and how uh, common a degenerative condition, for example, is likely to be and how often you're expecting to find it in the population and whether the sample that you have is representative of the, of the population is absolutely crucial in interpreting your findings. And I, I suppose this plays out because your, your, your own study did receive quite a bit of, of media attention, and, and these studies in general do. I suppose one of my concerns in this whole area is that um, what we do know from dementia research, particularly Alzheimer's disease research, is that probably the biggest single preventable risk is, is via physical activity. Physical activity seems to be particularly good in preventing dementia, being, um, along with cognitive activity. And uh, I, I suppose I worry a little bit that um, these types of studies maybe wouldn't put the kids off playing sport, but might well put their parents off supporting them in playing sport. Um, do you get any sense of that or have any concerns down that line? Well, I think it's um, it's understandable that that um, uh, you know there, there's fairly widespread interest in uh, concussion in in sport, uh, you know, including from parents who uh, uh, may want advice. Um, but I think there's also um, a responsibility of the media to understand that, by and large, the studies that uh, come out. They're a brick in the wall, so it's another contribution to our understanding, and it's not the end point. I think sometimes the media portray um, uh, outcome of specific studies as an end point or as proof uh, of uh, a negative um, outcome or a good outcome, and um, so I think that's something that um, there needs to be caution about. Yes, it's very hard, isn't it, in, in press releases and things to get the, the sort of nuance of the limitations whereby a few patients in either direction can make a, a major difference to results in some some contexts. Um, yeah, but I think overall this would uh, hopefully be a very reassuring study for uh, a large number of uh, parents. And certainly I know amongst uh, friends of mine there is there is a lot of concern about whether they're doing the right or wrong thing um, with their kids in terms of uh, being involved in sport. Um, you're allowed to take the Fifth Amendment on this question, but I, I, um, whenever I'm asked about this, I, I say wholeheartedly get your kids involved in sport. is probably the single best thing you can do for their health. But if friends ask you, do you do you give a reply or do you politely decline to, to comment? Um, well, I, I try and be careful what I say. I mean, I've been involved in um, sport and exercise for um, uh, probably about 40 years, so um, not contact sport, though. So I think it's it's um, a, a great thing to be um, involved in. Uh, but if, if asking specifically about contact sport, um, I would just say that I, I think that there do need to be 
um, um, guidelines for concussion and injury, and they do they do need to be followed. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's wise. I think certainly everyone would support, particularly removing kids from the field of play at a prompt point if there's any doubt. I think that's one area where there's no no dispute about. Good. Well, it's been very interesting. Is there any other points you think would be of interest to people that you you, you would like to highlight about the study? I think that um, you know there's been interest in in concussion and debate about it for you know probably six decades or more in general, and um, it was much toing and froing, and and we simply haven't uh, got to uh, the bottom of it yet. So there there certainly is a need for for further good quality work. Okay, Tom, thanks very much for uh, coming and speaking to us today. It's been a real pleasure to chat with you about it. It's a great study, and I hope you'll keep uh, sending your work to the JNNP because we certainly enjoy reading it. Thank you. For listeners who are interested in exploring this issue further, if you go to the JNNP's website, you'll be able to find the paper um, Long-Term Health Outcomes After Exposure to Repeated Concussion in Elite-Level Rugby Union Players. It's downloadable from the the website, and you can uh, see in in more detail uh, the the, the study. It's uh, it's nicely written up. It's it's got good, clear um, communication. So thanks very much for listening. I hope this podcast um, was of interest to you and uh, thanks very much for uh, continuing to look at the JNNP. Mm -hmm.